Let's turn to those words of eternal life this morning, Luke chapter 13. It's going to be our scripture passage today, Luke chapter 13. We are still in this series on the parables of Jesus written for us in the gospel according to Luke. So Luke chapter 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles out around the room. So if you look around, you can see one of those and use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, just take that home. We want you to have a Bible and, and read it and read along with us this morning. We'll also have the words up here on the screen behind me. So we're in Luke chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. These are the words of Jesus. We pray that he would bless the reading of his word. So I think in another context, I have uh, referenced a book called Remember Death by a pastor named Matt McCulloch, who's in Tennessee. It's called Remember Death, the subtitle, The Surprising Path to Living Hope. Living Hope is in Remembering Death. And, and this is a wonderful book. I really recommend it to you. It's, it's not only a consideration of all that the Bible has to say about death and our hope in death, but also what the Bible has to say about the practice of contemplating, remembering our own mortality. This is something that sounds a little morbid to us, to our Western ears, but this has actually been a very important devotional practice in the life of the church. It's called memento mori. It's a Latin command, remember death. And it's a biblical idea. So think about Psalm 90 that we looked at already this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That means teach us to think about the fact that we will die so that we will have wise hearts. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Over and over again, the Bible is clear. Wisdom is found in remembering death and remembering that we will die and in that we remember that this life is not permanent, that all of the things that we're working for and that we're worrying about in this life, well, they're really meaningless and that because we will die, because death is inevitable, what comes after death is of supreme importance for us to reflect on, to think about. So it's very important in the Bible, but we live in a culture today that does everything it can to not remember death. This is what Matt McCulloch writes. The remarkable achievements of modern medicine have pushed death 
further and further back in the average Western person's lifespan. We enjoy better disease prevention, better pharmaceutical treatments, and better emergency care than any other society in history. And that's a wonderful blessing, no question, but it comes with a major side effect. Many of us can afford to live most of our lives as if death isn't our problem. But friends, that, that simply isn't true. Try as hard as we can to ignore death. Death will not ignore us. And there are times, there are times in our lives, whether in the life of a country or in the life of a community or in the life of a family, there are times when death comes crashing in and demands that we remember it. And we usually call these moments tragedies. When a tragedy happens, it, it raises all kinds of difficult questions. It arouses grief and concern, mourning, sadness. And yet for all of that, they serve a very important purpose for the people of God. They help us to remember death. They help us to remember the truths of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes judgment. This is the big idea of our text. In fact, this is the big idea that looms over the whole section of Luke's gospel that we've been in for the last two weeks. Remember I said Luke chapter 12 is just one long discourse. Well, that discourse actually flows all the way through our text, chapter 13, verse 9. And it's all about how we consider this life in light of the life to come. And so what we looked at last week was particularly how that relates to our possessions in this life. That when you die, you can't take any of your stuff with you. And as chapter 12 keeps on going, it starts moving to this concern for being prepared for the judgment that is to come after death. So if you were to look at the end of chapter 12, beginning in verse 57, Jesus says this. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now Jesus is not giving us legal advice there at the end of chapter 12. This is a spiritual metaphor. Every single person stands accused before the God of the universe, the judge of all the earth because of our sin. We have a debt that we owe because of our sin that must be paid. And when we stand before the judge, there will be no pleading, there will be no asking for forgiveness in that day, but while we're on the way to the judge, you can settle accounts with your accuser. That's what Jesus is saying there at the end of chapter 12, and he just keeps on hitting this idea as we come into chapter 13, that you do not know the day that you will stand before the judge. So while there is still time, repent, or you'll perish. That's the big idea of the parable that we're going to get to in verse 6, but before that parable comes, again, we have Jesus having an interaction with people that are in the crowd. So this will be our first point this morning. Verses 1 to 5 are a question about tragedies. A question about tragedy. So verse one, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
So this is referring to a specific historical event, one that unfortunately the details of which have been lost to the sands of time, so we don't know exactly what happened here. We know that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was the governor of Judea at this time. He was the governor that presided over Jesus' own crucifixion. He was a ruthless man. And it was very common at this time in the ancient world to see instances of state-sponsored massacres. And that's what this is. That's what they're talking about. There were some Galileans, some Jews from Galilee who had come down to offer sacrifices. This is probably at the Passover. And as they were doing that, we don't know why, for what reasons, Pilate sent some soldiers in and he killed those men. Such that their blood mingled with the blood from their sacrificial lambs. It was horrifying. I mean, I was thinking, just imagine if that had happened in our own day of ever-present cameras and social media, what an uproar there would be. But even at this time, this was something that people were talking about because these people here are talking about it with Jesus. They ask Jesus about it. And this is, this is a minor observation, but I think it is worth making. If there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to get political, this would be it, wouldn't it? I mean, talk about government overreach. Soldiers coming into the temple, killing some Jews. It's, it's tinged with ethnic hostility. These are Romans attacking Jews. It's an affront to religious liberty, as we understand it. It's a lot. And these people are very concerned about it. Rightly, they should be. God is concerned about justice and how we order our society, but they come, and if there was ever a chance for Jesus to get into the pulpit and preach a political sermon, this would have been it. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And so neither will we. Neither will we, because, not because those things don't matter, but because there's something that matters so much more, and that is the eternal souls of all the people who are listening. So Jesus comes, they ask him this very politically charged question, and then verse two, he answers them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When tragedies happen and injustices in the world, when we are confronted with them, they they make us ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Is there some meaning behind this? And we start to grasp for rationalizations. We try, to, we try to come up with ways to make sense of this, to try to make the world seem like it's a little less scary, a little less chaotic. And so we try to come up with some way that this actually makes sense. And so maybe they're saying, maybe the reason that this happened to these Galileans was that these Galileans were actually really bad people. And they just got what they deserved. We often... We'll try to rationalize these things this way, even to justify God by saying, no, 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 this is how the world works. Bad things only happen to bad people, and good things should happen to good people. It's like karma. This is a very common misunderstanding that the Jewish people struggled with all throughout the Bible. They saw good things happening to people, and they assumed that that meant that that was a righteous person, this was God's blessing on them for their righteousness. Or they saw bad things happening to people, and they say, this person must be cursed because of some sin in their life. You think about the book of Job. This is the whole point of the book of Job. The, Job, the book of Job, right at the beginning, it says, Job was a righteous man, and yet he suffers indescribably. And his friends, they don't have categories for that. They say, no, Job, this must be because you're actually a bad person. You must be sinning, and and you know it, but you haven't confessed that yet, and God is cursing you. That's why these bad things are happening to you. And that is certainly not what happened for Job. 
In fact, the opposite is true. Or, or you consider the Gospels. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, they see a man who was born blind, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Somebody had to sin here that this bad thing would have happened to this person, and Jesus has to explain to them that it doesn't work like that at all. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then God, Jesus, heals this man. So in our text, this bad thing happens to these Galileans, and the people think, well, these must have been bad people then. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand at all. Verse 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Yes, what happened to them was tragic. It is always a tragedy when someone dies unexpectedly or at the hands of injustice, but the tragedy is not that they died. The tragedy is that they died so soon. Jesus is saying, don't be, dis- don't be surprised that they died. You're going to die too. And unless you repent, you'll perish. And you might die a lot sooner than you expected, just like they did Jesus follows this up by bringing up another current event. He brings up another example that would have been in the news at their time. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. So again, we don't know the, the details about this event, but it's another tragedy. One that I think is actually even more tragic because there's no one to blame. There were just 18 people and they were either in or near a tower, maybe one that was being built in Jerusalem and then it just fell. And they were trapped under the rubble and they died. And we have a really hard time with with tragedies like that where there's no one to blame. There's nobody to shake our fists at. There's no justice to be exacted. This is just, just death. And it seems like the, the senseless death of innocent people. But no one is innocent. This is the point that Jesus is trying to make, the principle that he's trying to bring out in these verses. Look again at verse 4. He calls these people, these seemingly innocent people, he calls them what? Offenders. That word offender, it can mean debtor. It's a call back to the end of chapter 12 where you would settle your debts with your accuser. They were debtors. They weren't worse offenders than anybody else, but they were still offenders. It's the same in verse 2. These weren't worse sinners, but they were still sinners. This is the same as what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God, Romans chapter 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. This is why you die. This is why the Galileans died. This is why those people in Jerusalem died. This is why you will die, because we are all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And again, this sounds morbid, it sounds harsh, but but unless we understand this that we will die. We don't know when, but we will, and the reason that we will die is because of our sin. Until we understand that, the gospel of the kingdom does not make any sense. Romans 3.23 has to precede some of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible. 
Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified, are made right with the judge. How? By his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by God. Faith. Unless you understand that all have sinned and deserve death and the death of Jesus for the justification of our sins doesn't make any sense. But this is what Jesus is holding out to this crowd. It's what he's holding out to us. You can be made right with the judge, but you have to repent or you will perish. That's so important. He says it twice. Do you see that? Same thing, two times. He's warning us. And he's saying, you may be Ignoring death, going about your happy way, but these tragedies are calling your attention. Remember, this is where you're going. You're going to stand before the judge. What are you going to say in that day? And when he says perish, we know he means more than just physical death. Because you don't just repent to save yourself from physical death. We know that even those that believe in Jesus will still die, yet even though they die, they will live. We know when Jesus says you will likewise perish, he's talking about eternal death an eternal conscious tragedy. That's what hell is. That's what the judge will give you because of your sins, unless you repent. So while you have time, turn. Ask for forgiveness. Settle your debts. That's the the big idea here. And so in verses six through nine, he's gonna give us a parable about repentance, a parable just explaining how this idea works. So this is our next point, a parable about repentance. Verse six, he told this parable a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So you hear vineyard, think like a garden, a fruit garden. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of grapes there, but there's going to be lots of other fruit-bearing plants in there. It's almost like an orchard. Okay, this is a place with really good soil. It's well-maintained. It's well-watered. This is a great place to be a fig tree. And the thing you need to know about fig trees is that once they are mature, they bear fruit annually. And usually for like four or five months a year, they are a very fruitful tree, and they're actually not that hard to take care of. They just bear fruit all the time, except for this one. Still in verse six, the man came seeking fruit on the fig tree and found none. So he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So not only is this tree not bearing fruit, it's barren, but it's actually hurting the other plants in the vineyard. It is taking nutrients out of the ground from these other plants that are bearing fruit. And in fact, it takes up a lot of room. They're a big tree. They're like 10 or 20 feet tall. This is a big tree. If you cut it down, you could put a lot of fruit bearing trees there. So it's not fair. It's not fair for this fig tree to be there not doing what it was made to be doing. It's not right to the vineyard. But, verse 8, the vine dresser answered the man, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, this is a very optimistic vine dresser. This tree has not borne any fruit for three years. There's really no hope that it would start. But he says, let me try. Let me try even harder. Let me give it even more attention. Let me dig down so that water can get into its roots. Let me put on manure so it can get even more nutrients than the nutrients that it's taking. Let us try everything that we can. Maybe then, maybe it will bear fruit. 
but there's a lot on the line for this tree, isn't there? It only has a little bit of time left. It's had three years. It has one left. Its days are numbered. This is like what John the Baptist says in chapter 3. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we know John the Baptist is not talking about trees. And neither is Jesus. This is a parable. It's a, it's a story. It's meant to teach us something about ourselves and to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And so this is what we do. We come to this parable and we say, okay, let's consider the different elements in this parable in turn to try and understand what, what Jesus is talking about. And when you do that, when you really consider what, what these different things represent, especially in their biblical context, this takes on a whole lot more meaning. Because it would be really, empty, or really easy on, on first approach to come to this parable and say, okay, every one of us is a tree and we're supposed to bear fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, God is going to cut us down. And that would be a fine understanding of this parable. That's what it's saying, but it's actually saying more because Jesus is asking us to think about this parable, what's called redemptive historically. To think about this parable in light of the whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of God's people. So this is incredible. Jesus is telling us the whole Bible in one little word picture of the barren fig tree. And we know that he's doing that because he says it's in a vineyard and it's about a fig tree. If you were to read the Old Testament, you would see again and again and again, the Old Testament refers to the nation of Israel as a vineyard or as a vine or as grapes. It was common in the first century at the time of Jesus for the Jews to identify themselves with a vine. They would put it on their coins. They would put it on their, their walls and things like that. It's the same way that we Americans would think of an eagle or the way that we would think of stars and stripes. They would think of a grapevine because God calls them a vineyard or grapevines so, so often. The, probably the best example of this is Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, which is itself a parable about a man making a vineyard. And it says he, he spends all of this time carving it out, building a wall, putting in water, making sure that it's well-maintained, and he plants a vine in this vineyard, and then he comes to the vineyard expecting good fruit, and it has bad fruit. This vine is, is giving him bad fruits. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That's the vineyard, Israel. And it's the same with fig trees. It's not as common as the vineyard language, but elsewhere in the Old Testament, Israel too is referred to as fig trees or, or as figs especially. So Jeremiah chapter 24, the prophet has a vision of two baskets, one with good figs in it and one with bad figs in it. And the basket of good figs, he says, these are the faithful Jews in exile. And the one with the bad figs, well, these are the unfaithful Jews that deserve punishment. Prophet Hosea in chapter 9, verse 10, he actually puts these two images together. Listen to this. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. And like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So we know that, okay, these, these people listening to Jesus, they have this Old Testament background. And so when Jesus gets up and tells them a parable that happens in a vineyard having to do with a fig tree, they're all thinking, gotcha, Israel. You're talking about Israel. 
But even then, they would hear that and they would know that it's, it's going back even farther than that because Israel is a representative of all mankind. And so this is where this parable really takes on light is when you take it all the way back to the very, very beginning. To Adam. God made man in his image and he placed him in a garden. And what was Adam surrounded by? Fruit. Fruit trees. And God gave Adam a very clear command to be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just to have children, but it's to bear the fruit of obedience and faithfulness and to go out and have dominion over the whole earth. He was supposed to go out from the garden and make that garden spread and make the kingdom of God spread all the way to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. And Adam failed to do that. Instead of bearing good fruit, he bore the fruit of disobedience. And because of that, he was cut off from the tree of the fruit of life that was in the midst of the garden. And that's why we all die. Instead of God's kingdom going out and spreading through the whole earth, instead it seems like death reigns, is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. Death reigns. Everyone that is born in Adam, which is to say every man and woman and child, dies. Because Adam disobeyed. And we are in Adam and we sin like Adam and so we will all likewise perish. So that goes back to the very beginning that God's purposes for mankind were for them to be a fruitful tree and they didn't bear good fruit until we die. But then when you read the Old Testament you see that there are other characters emerging that are like new Adams. So first you get Noah. Noah comes and Noah is a righteous man and you think, hey, he seems to be bearing the fruit that man was made to bear. Maybe this is the new Adam, especially when God wipes out the whole earth. He kind of starts over. He recreates the whole earth with Noah and you think, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe Noah is going to be the one that bears the fruit that man was made to bear, but Noah fails. And then you get a descendant of Noah, Abraham. And to Abraham, God makes a promise. He says, you know what? I'm going to make a nation out of you. And that nation is going to be what mankind was always meant to be. It's going to be fruitful and spread. And it, it, through that nation, I'm going to bless all the earth. Because this nation, the nation of Israel, named after Abraham's grandson, this nation will be what I always wanted mankind to be. And so when you read the Old Testament, Israel is always identifying themselves with Adam. And the very circumstances of their existence remind us of the Garden of Eden, the temple, and the promised land. They're a new Garden of Eden. The prophets, the priests, the kings of Israel, especially the kings in the line of King David, they are meant to do what Adam was meant to do. They are trying to do what Adam was supposed to do in the beginning. So everything about Israel is like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the redeemed, renewed, recreated mankind like what they were supposed to be in the garden. And if, if Israel can just be this kingdom of God that they were meant to be, if they can bear that same fruit, the fruit of faithfulness, the fruit of obedience, the fruit of righteousness, then all of the other nations in the world would see the kingdom of God and they would see the righteousness, they would see God that would want to come in. This was the purpose of Israel was to bear fruit so that it would be a blessing to the whole world. That's what God said to Abraham. And from the Exodus, when God first planted his vine in the land of Canaan, all the way until this time where Jesus is talking, 13 or 14 centuries had passed. Over a thousand years had passed. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that Israel was not bearing the fruit that they were made to bear. They have been a barren fig tree. doesn't mean that some of them in Israel were not faithful, but on the whole, Israel was not being a blessing to the world that God had made them to be. 
And here comes the owner of the vineyard. Look, for years now I have been coming to this fig tree looking for fruit, and I find none. Cut it down. Jesus is talking about God's judgment on Israel for their faithlessness, for their lack of fruitfulness. And that's God's just judgment. Why should they use up the ground? Why should they use up the land? Why should they? Because they're not bearing the fruit that he made them for. And God is a just judge. And they are an unjust, an unrighteous, a sinful people. He would be right to cut them down. But then here comes this optimistic vine dresser. Sir, give it just a little bit more time. Let me give it a little bit more attention. I know they've had a long time, but just a little bit more. Maybe, maybe, maybe. They'll start bearing fruit. And so we ask, okay, who's the vine dresser? And it'd be really tempting to say Jesus. <laughs> to give the Sunday school answer, oh yeah, Jesus. It'd be easy to interpret this parable this way. Is, is the owner is God the Father and the vine dresser is Jesus and God the Father is the mean one and Jesus is the nice one. But that is really bad Trinitarianism. There's an element of this, I think, that we could see the vine, the, the vine dresser is associated with Jesus. He's, ser- he's serving in an intercessory role. He's kind of like Moses interceding on behalf of Israel when God wants to blow Israel up for the golden calf. But if we stress that too much, then what we'll do is we'll pit persons of the Trinity against each other. And we can't do that because the Trinity is never opposed to itself. They're all one. So God the Father is not the mean one. Jesus isn't the nice one. I think we should understand this parable is not talking about two different persons in the Godhead, but as two different attributes of God. And I think this is so profound. That the owner of the vineyard, in a, in a very limited human way, represents God's justice. But the vine dresser represents God's patience. And what Jesus is most trying to bring out in this story is the patience of God. The incredible patience of God. Second Peter verse three, or chapter three, verse nine says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." That's our God. He's a just God. People will perish for their unrepentance as they stand before the judge of all the earth, but he's so patient. He doesn't want that to happen. He's loving and he's kind. Think about Exodus chapter 34 where where God reveals himself in his name and his his true character. He says, I'm the Lord. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's our God. He's a just God. But he's a patient God. He's slow to anger. He wants us to repent so that no one would perish. But Romans 2 verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why the vine dresser intercedes. He says, let me, let me give it another shot. Okay, let me try. Give it some more attention. Let me do something. He says, I'm gonna dig. I'm gonna put on manure I think we can understand that as God throughout the history of Israel sending prophets, coming with hard words, coming with the word of God, calling them to repentance. 
saying this is God's law. You are disobeying it. If you repent, it will, it will lead to life. But if you don't, it will lead to death. I think in our own day, we can understand this as the work of the church. That we go out and we proclaim the gospel. And as we do that, God is using us to break up soil, to, to try and break through to people that are hard-hearted and unrepentant. Yet I think this is how we can understand the preaching of God's word. So if that's true, then I'm just standing up here giving you all a bunch of manure right now. But I think most of all, this is how we can see how Jesus understands his own ministry. He is coming to Israel after hundreds of years of disobedience. He's saying, you guys have one shot left. I'm going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to proclaim repentance and salvation. But Jesus knows they're not going to listen. He came to his own people and he knows that they're not gonna listen to him. He has already said, if they had ears, they would hear, but they don't. That's why everything is in parables to them. That they have been hardened and they will reject Jesus in their hardness. And that's why if you looked at the end of Luke chapter 13, it ends with Jesus lamenting over the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not gonna listen. You wouldn't turn. If you had turned, I'd have, I'd have covered you up and brought you in, but you wouldn't listen. You'd rather stone the prophets. All of this, it, it brings to mind another parable in the gospel according to Luke. It's not one that we have marked out to study in this series. It's in Luke chapter 20. It's often called the parable of the wicked tenants. And it's one too that has to do with a vineyard. You remember this one, the wicked tenants? God, Jesus says a man makes a, a vineyard. And then he lends it out to, lets it out to other people to work it and tend it. But he comes to them, to the tenants in this vineyard, saying, give me the fruit. Give me the fruit from the vineyard. And they won't give it to him. So he sends servants, representing the prophets. He sends them to the vineyard. And, and the people don't listen to them. They despise them. They run them out of the vineyard until the man that owns the vineyard says, okay, what am I going to do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Then Jesus asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. As it said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the story of redemptive history. God had a people that he wanted to bear fruit. They weren't bearing fruit. He's been patient with them. He sent prophets again and again until he sends his own son and they reject him and they kill him. And the Jewish people working with the Romans, it was like the whole world was against Jesus. They killed him, hung him on the cross. Jesus came as the son of God, his beloved Son, and he came in human flesh as a son of Adam 
so that he alone could do what Adam failed to do, that he alone could bear the fruit that Adam was made to bear. That's why he is called the second Adam, the better Adam, the last Adam. Jesus came as the son of God and the son of man so that he could be a better Noah. He came so that he could be the true offspring of Abraham. We saw this in the book of Galatians. He came so that he could be the true Israel. Jesus in John 15 calls himself the true vine. I'm Israel, the only faithful Israelite, the only one that's doing what Israel was made to do. I'm the king of Israel, the son of David, and the Messiah. That was Jesus. He never sinned. He never owed a debt of sin and said he had inside himself Life, eternal life. And he came to his own people preaching to them, repent. Your time is short. The axe is already laid at the foot of the tree and they didn't listen and they hung him on a cross. And he died. And they buried him in a tomb. They closed the door. And then three days later, he came back to life. Three days later, Jesus came out of the tomb. And that changes everything. That changes the whole story. Adam died, Noah died, Abraham died, all of Israel died, David died, Jesus died, and came back to life. Hallelujah. And that's our hope. It's in that that all of the plans that God had for Israel come to fruition in Jesus and in the new people that he's the cornerstone of. A new people, a new, a new kingdom of God, a new, a new people of Israel. It's not just made of Jews, but it's made of Gentiles, and it's all people that enter in by faith. He took out the tree, and he planted a new one, the church. And in that tree, with Jesus as the cornerstone, God is accomplishing what he always meant for us, because all of us who have believed in Jesus, who have been recreated in the new Adam, who already are walking in this new resurrection life, we are able to bear the fruits that God made for mankind to bear. But if you don't repent, then you'll perish. You'll perish apart from Jesus. And that is the whole point of this passage. These are sobering words. Very, very sobering. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you know you're not a Christian, you know that you haven't believed in Jesus yet, you're still exploring this, you're still asking some questions, I don't know how we can make it any clearer for you. And what Jesus is saying here, this is, this is the whole application of this sermon. Repent. Repent just means turn. It just means stop running away from God and run to God. Come to God. You know that you have a debt of sin. You have sinned just like we all have. And when you stand before the judge, you will pay for that sin. But Jesus paid for it on the cross. That's why he had to die on the cross. To suffer the consequences of our disobedience, even though he was perfectly obedient. We think of the the Galileans that were offering their sacrifices and Pilate killed them and their blood ran down and mingled with their sacrifices. Well, Jesus says, I'll perish in your place and I'll let my own blood run down as the sacrifice for your sins. We think about the people that were buried under the Tower of Siloam. Jesus says, I will be buried on your behalf. I will go into the grave. I will experience death on your behalf. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish But the gospel is that for all of those whom believed, Jesus perished in their place. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But if you repent, you will likewise live because Jesus lives. He came out of the grave. 
He came out and he lives forever. He came out in a resurrection body. He came out in a body that had conquered death. And so if you believe in Jesus, you are united with Jesus in life like his. So even if you do die, you die a physical death, but never an eternal one. That's why the Apostle Paul sings in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So if you haven't believed, you will likewise perish. But if you say you believe, is there fruit? I'm struck that this fig tree was not, was not saved just by virtue of being in the vineyard. That's the problem with Israel. They thought just by being descended from Abraham, just being in this land and being part of this nation, that that was all that they needed. But if there wasn't fruit there, if there wasn't faith there, if there wasn't obedience there, then they would be cut off. It's not about being in the vineyard. It's about being a fruitful tree. So if you say, I'm a Christian, but there's not fruit in your life, there's not the fruit of obedience, there's not the fruit of faithfulness, there's not the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, then you need to check yourself. Because God's not mocked. And he'll cut down any tree that's not bearing good fruit. If you're not seeing the fruit of your life, of, of, of this new life in Christ, whatever you think you are, I fear that you might perish. And so you too need to Repent, and I say this to little kids too. I was thinking about this. Kids, you are not saved by being in a Christian family. You are saved by your own faith. Everyone sins before the judge by themselves. And so, so kids, you're never too young to repent and believe in Jesus. And you're never too young to die. So I ask you too, what Jesus is asking you, repent and believe. And for those of us who have, who have repented and who have believed and who see this fruit being born in our own lives, then we see where we fit into this whole story of God. That's why this is so much better if you think about it in the whole story instead of just making this individual thing about being saved before you die. That we are, we are plugged into God's plan for redeeming the whole world. And if you, church, are part of this faithful tree bearing fruit, then we do what Adam was meant to do in the first place. We are fruitful and we multiply and we extend God's kingdom to the ends of the earth by making disciples. By taking this same message that Jesus preached here, we go out to our neighbors, we go out to our friends, we go to North Africa, we go to Guatemala, we go to wherever the Lord would send us, we go and we say, repent or you'll perish. Repent and you'll live because Jesus lives. And that's our hope. It's our hope in the face of death that Jesus came out of the tomb. And if Jesus came out, then, then we know that even though there will be tragedies in this life, we know that it will be difficult at times, it will be hard, that our God lives. And if we have repented, we will live with him. So even if we grieve in the midst of tragedies, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So let me finish with these words from that book, Remember Death. We believers have no reason to hide from the truth about death in all its ugliness. If death is not a problem, well, then Jesus won't be much of a solution. But the more deeply we feel death's sting, the more consciously we will feel the gospel's healing power. The more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we'll hear that death's days are numbered too, and the more we allow ourselves to grieve 
the separations death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which, quoting Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because Jesus lives. In that hope we wait. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that, that Jesus has swallowed up death and victory. And that because he lives, we will live with him, those of us who have believed. And Lord, I pray for the people here in this room who have not believed. God, that you would help them to not delay any longer. That they wouldn't wait, that they wouldn't think that they have more time. But Lord, that right now, right now would be the day that they would seek the Lord while he is to be found. They would repent and believe in the gospel. And they would join us in bearing fruit to the ends of the earth. We ask this in your name. Amen.